Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. On this week's episode, we have Lachlan, Lauren and Justin. On this week, we find out if Carl Sagan's beautiful phrasing about all of us being stardust is really true and how we can actually test for that. We also find out how bats block each other and make sure that they are the most successful ones in the bat cave. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. So Lachlan, you like to jam out on the latest good times and classic tunes and sort of go with the flow and experience the joys of the music and let it carry you to new and exciting places. <laughs> At the risk of incriminating myself, yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> Why do you ask, Justin? Well, you know, have you ever sort of tried to jam out to the music that you're hearing along with thousands of other people? Yeah, I've been to a music festival or two. And have you found it kind of hard to sort of enjoy all that music when everyone else is around there with you? Well, yeah, if you're, like, trying to listen to a band and someone else is just, like, yelling in your ear, it can be a little annoying. It kills the buzz, doesn't it? It really does. And ruins the vibe. It kills my good vibrations, Justin. That's right. It, like, literally ruins the good vibrations you're feeling by having someone next to you. They're either yelling or singing off-key or maybe having their phone playing more music, or maybe music from another stage. In fact, that gets to the real point. If you want to be really serious about enjoying your smooth jams and music, you want to have a, a way to enjoy that signal without any other corrupting influences, without any other thing to interfere with that signal, to block it, to jam it, to disrupt it, so you can enjoy the pure experience of that music on its own. I'm detecting in that tone, I think there might be a segue there some, some, somewhere. There, There is intentionally a segue built into that, and that is... If we're not alone in trying to ex- enjoy the experiences of a signal on its own, because we're doing that listening to music for pleasure, we also use that signals you know, to hear people when they talk on the phone. And we have a lot of really fancy signal processing, so when you use your phone or your device connected up to Skype or Google Hangouts, it will actually automatically filter out the incoming noise signals and cut out the noise so you just hear the person talking. And that's really useful for you. But that's done by signal jamming, effectively, by playing back the sound of the noise and the, the reverse signals, and so it actually cancels it out. So you just hear the true signal you want to listen to left. And that's great for us being able to talk to each other and for us recording a podcast, which we try to weed out the noise so you only hear the smooth talking of our voices. But, you know, that's, again, still for our pleasure and for our communication. We don't do that in order to thrive and to eat. But people who rely, or people, animals that rely on sound in order to live, and I'm not talking about buskers and drummers, I'm talking about, of course, things like bats and dolphins, they use echolocation, which effectively means bouncing the sound waves to find their prey. And to them, not getting someone to interrupting their jam is literally a matter of life or death. That sounds really interesting, Justin. So you're saying they bounce um, their sort of, they, they send out a sound wave, it bounces off something, and then it returns back to them. And the time it takes to bounce back actually gives them an idea of where things are, right? That's right. That's how sonar, which we use in submarines and a bunch of other things, but also in bats and dolphins, that's how it works. They send out a click for a dolphin or a pop sound for a bat, and they they time using their ears and their brains a map for when how long it takes for things to bounce back to them. So there's an object in front of them, but only in one certain spot, 
it will, it will that spot will bounce back faster than all the rest of the sound. And that's how they know there's an object there. Did you know that bats invented the radio before humans did, though? Well, that's right. Um, because as well as just this this sonar, this bouncing and bouncing back, they actually also invented the idea of frequency modulation. So they don't they don't just go and then echoes back. That's not actually how it works. Um, that was very scientific. That's what bats sound like. Um, they actually are constantly emitting a tone, and then they can actually modulate or change that tone and basically um, combine two different sound waves together. Um, and that's how they sort of um, actually managed to maintain a constant picture rather than just having intermittent flashes at different times. That's a really clever way of actually solving that problem. Um, but the thing with this, Justin, is that... Um, like you can sort of um, exploit and mess around with this if you're like jamming a television signal, is it the same thing with bats? Well, this is some really fantastic research. I mean, I've done a Wake Forest University in Winston in Salem, which is in North Carolina in the United States. Aaron Corcoran, who was an undergrad student at the time, postgrad student, who was just studying bats and their, their reproduction cycles and their food, he basically recorded a whole bunch of uh, Bat-moth interactions, sorry, bats eat moths. So he basically recorded a whole bunch of bats hunting moths. And then he started to notice some weird stuff going on in, in the interactions that he was observing. And what he ended up finding is that the bat's flight paths occasionally were differing from where the moth actually was. So the bat would go for the moth, but like completely miss. So the moth wasn't where their echolocation was saying it was. Yeah, the bat was like, I'm going to go down and get that moth. I've seen the moth. I'm going to go swing, fly down and get it. And it would miss completely, and the moth would be like, What is going on, bro? What the hell? I'm just flying here. So were these bats just really bad at echolocation? Well, it turns out it's even more complicated than that. So when he started looking back and analysing the data he had, specifically from some ultrasonic microphones he had at the sites, he actually picked up that there was another, another call, actually, basically, coming out from another bat. So one bat was echolocating, he's like, hey, there's a moth there. Another bat sort of saw that moth as well, but also saw the other bat and produced a signal, not to block and cancel it out, but to suggest that the moth was in a place where the other bat well, put out another signal, another place, to suggest that the moth was actually in a different place. So the first bat would swing down to that fake dummy moth location, and the real bat, the other bat, could go down and swoop into where the moth actually was. So by picking up where the moth is and the other bat, it could send a dummy signal to throw off other potential hunters. Is this like in sci-fi when they like use holograms and stuff to make the enemy think that the protagonists are different to where they actually are? That's right. It's pretty much bats doing that to each other for fun and profit, where that profit is eating tonight. I'm really looking forward to um, the newest Batman comic, having like this as the um, Batman's greatest villain. He just like tells Batman where the villains are, except they're actually in a different location. They just headbutt walls instead. Yes. The best part about this is that the bats wait. They don't just send off the signal to jam everyone, because if you just send it all the time and jam stuff, the other bats would figure it out and figure out what they're doing. They wait to the exact moment the other bat swoops in to send the fake dummy mod signal. So it will go, I've totally got this plan, and then it'll just suddenly veer off to where he thinks the mods suddenly darted to, and it's going to be completely wrong. And so the other bat can be like, ha ha, gotcha. So they don't, they don't just spam it, they have to pick their opportune moment. Yeah, and the best part about this is, you know, it just shows to show how tough bats are and how tough being a bat is. Because you forget, bat caves are not just full of one brooding, orphan, 
fighting against all the crimes and injustices of the world. No, bat caves are full of thousands and thousands of bats and many moths and other creatures too. But if you want to eat, you really have to compete. And you've got to be good at throwing off any other competition. So that's why bats are pretty much heroic creatures, but also very devious. looked up to you. You've always sort of twinkled brightly in the sky that is my life. I've always considered you a bit of a star. And that reminds me of a really beautiful quote by Carl Sagan, where he talks about us all being made of star stuff. So, sort of, the universe was formed, and then anything that is even close to related to our, our Earth will be forged through the um, explosions of, of supernovae, of, of stars being born and, and dying and stuff like that. And it sort of ties the way that the entire universe is just part of this overall bigger process that we're just a small chunk of. Every single thing that we see around us wasn't originally here because Earth isn't that old. We've actually all come from stars, other sides of the universe, and we're all part, especially the heavier, more complex elements, we're actually all part of the intense core of a star at some point. They're only ever produced by difficult nuclear fusion that only occurs in the hearts of the biggest stars and then spread across the universe in massive supernova. And Carl Sagan explained rather eloquently that we are all star stuff, and he's right. The only the things around us, especially the heavy and complex elements, had to come from that fusion process. They can't have come from anywhere else. And that's really quite comforting. I mean, you think about it, no matter how much of a loser you are, you've been generated by some of the most complex systems in the entire universe. And no matter how much the person next to you might annoy you, you're not that dissimilar because you're all born from that same nuclear heart. That's right, and you've all travelled. Everything that makes up you, everything about you, everything that's around you in your life has all travelled for so many millions of years just to be, and billions in fact, to be where they are that right moment, that right at that very moment just goes to show that you really shouldn't make the most all those opportunities, and that's one of the beautiful part of Carl Sagan's speeches. There, it's really a call to arms to capitalize all that energy that's going to get you where you are today from an intergalactic level. But this is fantastic poetry and beautiful imagery and complicated science and wah. But how do we actually prove that? I mean, we don't want poetry. We want cold hard facts. We're so scientists, we to... damn it. We don't have time for this rubbish poetry. And Researchers from Australian National University's Research School of Physics and Engineering have said enough of this scientific poetry rubbish. We don't actually prove this with some serious facts. It's not rubbish, guys. We actually do like it. We're just being facetious. Yes. I'm, just... I'm sure they actually were very uh, excited about this, and in fact, they wanted to find a way to actually prove it. So it was more than just words. It was actual fact, and we could say categorically that this is where it's come from. So what do they do? Do they look up in the sky? Do they look to the Earth's core? Well, that's the challenging thing. How do you find out if things around us are from stardust? How do you find out if something is from a supernova, which is what we mean when we say stardust? Stardust is spread by a star exploding and shooting out across the universe, and that's called a supernova. Um, it's not just a large convention for pop culture. 
Um, so basically they said, well, big materials that are essential for human life, like iron, potassium, iodine, you know, that was spread through space by the supernova. But they'd also really importantly created heavy stuff like gold, silver, and lead, and super heavy radioactive elements like uranium and plutonium. So this stuff isn't really um, essential for life, but it's a necessary sort of signature of a supernova? That's right. It's, they're all part and parcel of the same thing. So to look for the one signal to find stuff that is necessary for life, you can look for all these other things. The handy part about plutonium, specifically plutonium-244, is that it, it, it's got a really interesting radioactive half-life that actually can be used as a clock, effectively, to date, you know, age things, right? So the half-life, the radioactive decay time for half of it to decay, which is what we mean by half-life, for plutonium-244 is 81 million years. So it's a really good long-term ticking clock that we can look at. So we can look at how much plutonium-244 is on Earth somewhere and then sort of figure out how much of it was there millions and millions of years ago. Yeah, and that's right, and sort of trace it back and where it had to come from and how much would be there to be produced. Um, how do these elements get created in supernovas? How does that work? Well, I mean, the interesting part about nuclear fusion, just to give an explanation, stars work by you know combining things together, hydrogen mostly, to create new elements. And when they burn through all that hydrogen, that produces huge amounts of energy, which is what we see as light and warmth and lovely sun rays. That's what makes the sun hot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the problem is, once it runs out of hydrogen fuel to squeeze together and burn, um, it then starts burning helium, and then other things down the chain, and slowly progressively forming heavier and heavier elements, until it starts to make these crazy super heavy elements. So you're saying burning, you're actually like, it's... it's Squeezing them together and creating, releasing a lot of energy, but creating new elements in the process. We call that fusion, and it's really difficult for us to do on Earth, and requires loads of energy, and stars just do it. That's what they do. So if plutonium is called plutonium-244, I take it that means it's like one of the heaviest things, because it has like... It's a particularly heavy isotope of, of, of plutonium, yeah. Because it's got 70-odd protons and the rest neutrons. Yes. That's huge. Yes. So where can you find this element <laughs> if it is so stable? Well, that's right. So one of the things that we actually did with it is to say, well, how did this dust explode out from the supernova and settle? And if you want to look for a place on Earth that's relatively smooth and consistent, and it hasn't changed over billion, millions of years. My beautiful face? Well, unfortunately, your beautiful face is not that old. In fact, it's, on a geological timescale, non-existent. Oh. Yeah, sorry. Um, however, if you look at the Earth's crust as a cross-section, it's actually relatively stable. So if you take samples of the Earth's crust, you can actually find out everything that sort of made it up at different points, and you can get a layer cake to actually figure out, over time, how things have gone. In fact, what they did in this example is they actually took... 10 centimetre thick samples of the Earth's crust, and basically you get 25 million years of layers that you can cut down through. And by analysing the spread in that, you can actually get an idea of what has decayed through it. And what we've actually sort of picked up is that by analysing the amounts that we've seen in there, it suggests that the heavy elements that we see on Earth, uranium, thorium, plutonium, um, it suge suggests in the dating of them that... The supernova that reached Earth actually happened very close, but not at the start, like after we were formed, so around the time of our formation. So it's actually the elements that we were sort of given by this supernova is actually what gifted, uh, gifted us some interesting parts that make up the life on Earth that we see today. Not life itself, but the geographic, the geological fabric of Earth and its very being. And the best place to look at all of this is right at the bottom of the ocean, where that crust is thickest and most easily accessible. So what does this actually tell us? Are you saying that um, 
Earth was formed from one supernova and that all our geological features were formed from a different supernova? No, I'm saying that the uh, Earth was a creation process around the, uh, around the sun, causes all these disks to form around it of matter that's coalesced into Earth amongst other planets. It's suggesting that there was a supernova around a similar time that also seeded us with a lot of these heavy elements. Whether or not that seeded the disk or seeded Earth itself in its formative stages is another story. Cool. But it says that since it's not part of the core, but part of that layer on the crust, it suggests it actually arrived after that crust was formed. Which is just goes to show that the, the way that stardust can actually become part of a very fabric of life. Over millions and millions and millions of years. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. So we talk about how we find if we are all actually stardust from supernovas. We also find out more about bats jamming each other out and swooping in on their prey. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.